Salam and welcome to the Claritas Books podcast, a dynamic audio space that explores a wide range of publications, from history to halal branding and spirituality to storytelling. I'm journalist Ramona Ali, and in today's episode, we ask, what makes a great leader? Some compelling answers can be found in the book, Muhammad, 11 Prophetic Leadership Qualities That Changed the World, by the late Nabil Al-Azami. With 20 years of experience, Nabil Al-Azami was an award-winning leadership specialist. He founded Murabi Consulting, which specialises in values-based HR and ethical leadership development. This episode is going to be quite a special one. While we mourn the recent loss of Nabil, we're blessed to be in the company of those who knew him as a friend, a husband and a visionary. The greatest you know, crisis that we face in leadership is not really one of competency or of efficiency or even empathy. It is actually a moral crisis. Leadership should feel like a burden. You know, it should keep you awake at night. And that's why the burden of leadership is something that's spoken about in Islam. We have much more that connects us than separates us. And that our role really is to be kind in the world. And I think that's what we've lost in losing him. So here we now have our dear beloved brother Nabil Al-Azami in the few moments that we uh, have with him today. Thank you. Uh, f- first of all, thank you so much for coming. It-, it means a lot that you've given up time in Ramadan to be here. So can I first of all thank you and you should give yourself a round of applause, honestly, for being here. Um, Secondly, I'm, I'm Joining me to discuss Nabil's book is one of his mentors, a very close friend, and someone who Nabil saw as an example of sound leadership. Sheikh Sharif al-Banna is a scholar, entrepreneur and the CEO of a global media company. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Sharif. Thank you so much for being here. Waalaikum salam, Ramona. I'm happy to be here as ever. Nabil, as I told you, you don't have to do anything. There's no presentation. There's no notes. There's no minutes. The very fact that you're here is enough for everybody. Many people here, you know, they're here to see you, to congratulate you, to share some moments with you. So this is not a Murabi training program. No, no, this is no. not exactly a leadership program. You're not pitching to anybody. You're we're running all, a good program yourself, I we're, think. We're all, we're, all, we're all bought in. We've all, we've all bought in. That's why we're here. So inshallah... Um, It was created under what seemed impossible circumstances when Nabil was diagnosed with a spinal cord tumour that spread to his brain. But he was determined to get his book written. And there are so many books about leadership. There are about 90,000 books on leadership that are floating around. There are about 1,000 that are published each year. What do you think sets this book apart from the rest of them? I think there are many factors, three that come to mind. The first would be the fact that this is a an attempt, a unique attempt to reconcile between faith and leadership. And this is a book that discusses spirituality and deriving leadership lessons from essentially a body of faith through the example of the last prophet of Islam. So this reconciliation of religion, spirituality, faith and leadership is quite unique. Secondly, I would say that Nabil's own background and what he brought to the table is quite unique. He himself was a devout Muslim, knowledgeable, um, but at the same time, he was a professional, an award-winning you know, HR, management, leadership, practitioner, consultant. Many a book on leadership can speak about leadership from a theoretical perspective, philosophical perspective even, without actual experience of 
training people without actual experience of leadership uh, uh, positions themselves. And it is an extraordinary book and it focuses on 11 leadership qualities of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Why 11 and how were they chosen? Yeah, that was quite an interesting process. Nabil actually um, tried to list in his study of the seerah, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, he actually listed approximately 50 qualities that he saw as worthy of defining as leadership qualities of the Prophet. But 50 qualities to discuss in any serious depth in a book of two, 300 pages wouldn't do it justice. Thus, what he then did was try to frame a, an overarching paradigm of leadership. And this he derived from Islam's first scripture or Islam's primary scripture, the Quran. So in the Quran, Moses is described as the Al-Qawi Al-Amin, meaning the one who is strong and the one who is trustworthy. From this, he derived a paradigm of competency, referring to Al-Qawi, and integrity, referring to the notion of trustworthiness, as two overarching paradigms of leadership. And then went through his 50 qualities that he listed from the Prophet's life and decided to choose those that were most relevant to these two uh, overarching paradigms of competency and integrity. And that's how we ended up with 11. I mean, because you obviously your, your views about leadership change over the years. So was it just about condensing it all? Was there Actually, it was quite an interesting experience. I mean, part of it was about summarising and condensing uh, and putting into a coherent format and a body of ideas what he believed in on the topic of leadership. But as we were going through the chapters, he actually started to revise some of his ideas. And what's, I think, the most reflective of his ideas is the last chapter of the epilogue which he wrote from his, um, from his hospital uh, bed, which again reflects a certain sense of urgency and energy, uh, which might not be found throughout other sections of the book. Um, so yeah, de definitely, there was this sort of attempt at the same time of revisiting some of those ideas, since the ideas were evolving over the past, uh, or over the 10 years or decade that he was working on the book. It is intended for a global audience, both Muslim and non-Muslim, may I add, the book does look at the leadership qualities of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, but it is it is the methodology adopted in the book, which is one of the unique features of the book, is that it looks at the case study of Prophet Muhammad, but drawing universal principles. In the book, we, we've heard about IQ, we've heard of EQ, emotional intelligence, but Nabil talks about SQ, spiritual intelligence. Now, what did he mean by that? That's actually one of those areas that took a lot of time between ourselves uh, to discuss and deliberate on. And I'm going to read from his definition. He describes it as one's ability to effectively direct oneself and inspire others towards a shared purpose. It involves leveraging the power of purpose and values to create meaningfulness and making a difference. It is one's ability to tap into people at the level of purpose and meaning. And hence, what I tend to tell people who are not of faith and other backgrounds, or even Muslims who haven't connected with the faith, is to say, you are not embracing the fullness of your humanity if you're not exploring your spiritual intelligence. Because it's sitting dormant there, and you're walking around thinking you're very clever you know, with your IQ, but actually you haven't fully embraced humanity. Essentially, spiritual intelligence is your ability to direct yourself and inspire others, that's the leadership bit, towards a purpose.
ideally a shared purpose, but it doesn't have to be. If you're coaching someone else, um, it's, mm. it's their purpose. If you're in a common organization, it's a shared purpose. So it's the ability for you to dig deep and find out what are your values and how can you leverage those values to create meaningfulness in your life and in other people's lives, that's the leadership bit, and make a difference, right? Because you've got people working in defense coming up with advanced ways to kill people, and they're very, very good at it, but they're not making a good difference. So and I would and I would agree that the the greatest you know crisis that we face in leadership is not really one of competency or of efficiency or even empathy. It is actually a moral crisis. It is actually, in essence, an ethical crisis. But what we see in the world is the rise of bad leadership. We find many business schools. We find MBA programs. We find leadership programs. But this doesn't necessarily correspond to the rise of good leadership. So what went wrong here? And I think what went wrong here is this lack of focus on integrity and morality. I'm here in the heart of Westminster, inside the Houses of Parliament, and I'm about to meet Baroness Saeed Avarsi, who Nabil cites in his book as a case study for the quality of justice. Baroness Varsi is the first ever Muslim woman to serve in the British Cabinet. Not only is she a peer, she's also a lawyer, businesswoman and campaigner. It's time to go and hear her unique insight on leadership. Oh, wow. I'm very fortunate and perhaps a little intimidated to be seated with an individual who's been described as Britain's most powerful Muslim woman. Baroness Saeed Avarsi, Salaamu Alaikum. Thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us today. Wa Alaikum Salaam. I'm uh, delighted to be here. As you know, Nabil chose you as a case study that epitomises justice. How does it feel to be cited in a book about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him? I think it's so humbling and, and also a little scary to think that the the qualities and the characteristics of the Prophet which we've all grown up on and read about, and the qualities that we all aspire to live our lives by, is something that somebody could attribute directly to the way in which you've lived out your life. Um, and when I first heard about it and when I first read the book when I received a copy of it, uh, it was uh, it was really humbling, quite a moving moment. And the reasons that Nabil gives for citing you are your principled resignation over the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict of 2014, your commitment to promote equality, and, and you're calling the Conservative Party to account constantly over Islamophobia. And as we see from the Prophet's life, fighting for justice is full of sacrifice and difficulties. Do you think that's really true of your experience? Politics is one of those spaces where you're constantly battling between the right, doing the right thing and doing the right thing for you. But doing the right thing is tough and can often be career ending. And it's something that in politics people avoid. And that's why we talk about this sense of speaking truth to power. It's far easier to suck up to power. It's far easier to massage the ego of power and far easier to keep power happy than it is to speak truth to them and call them out. Well, what are your thoughts on female leadership um, in both the Muslim communities and in the wider community? Are you hopeful for progress? 
Um, a couple of years ago, I completed uh, my book, The Enemy Within, and at the end of that, I, I wanted to acknowledge the people who'd played a role in my life and who'd really shaped my politics and, and my opinions. And every time I started writing down a list of names, the number of women that uh, sprung to mind was vast. And, and as I said in the book at the time, that every day I'm reminded that the real powerhouse in the British Muslim community are its women. Again, I've written about this, that when my sister, my you know, the fifth sibling was born and it was yet another girl. I remember many people coming around and seeing my parents and really offering their condolences and it felt more akin to a bereavement rather than a celebration. So I think we start with that. I think in later life, it also needs men to champion the cause. My husband took a position and he often says that it's easy for a man to want to become a leader or to become a leader, but it's even better for a man to create the space for someone else to lead. And I think men have to also uh, learn the joys of standing by a leader and watching a woman, you know, in their life become a leader and to really revel in her success rather than just want it for themselves. So Nabil in the book points out that the Queen of Sheba is a female ruler and she is the only example of political leadership in the Quran. How does that affect you personally? Well, I mean, I've read up on the story of the Queen of Sheba. In fact, there are two stories, one from the Quran and one more contemporary, which I've said I would love to be able to tell to a wider audience. One is the Queen of Sheba and one is Razia Sultana, who was the, a sultan, a leader, a political leader in, in, uh, in India. And I just feel that there is so much misunderstanding and stereotyping about the role of women uh, in, in religion per se, but also in Islam uh, specifically. And the role of Muslim women in politics is such a vital component of Islam and Islamic development. And I think, therefore, these stories need to be told to, uh, to a broader audience. But what I also find is that the emotional intelligence that is necessary for compassionate leaders is something which women are most often just instinctively born with. And what this time needs is compassionate leaders with emotional intelligence. And therefore, I think it is absolutely vital that women and specifically Muslim women play their role in political leadership. And to anyone listening who might want to get into politics uh, or make a change in their community... What's your first piece of advice to them? Uh, this is a really uh, dark and toxic and difficult period in politics. But it always uh, is the darkest just before it starts to get light. And more than ever, we need people who will bring light to this dark space of politics. And so I'm not going to say it's easy and I'm not going to say that uh, there won't be some very difficult and dark days for individuals. And I've spoken to many female colleagues who have, who have talked about those moments. But this is when more than ever we need women to step up. And uh, because if we vacate this space, then we leave it to become far worse. So I always say to young people who are coming into politics that if politics feels easy, you're doing it wrong. That if leadership feels like a kind of a breeze in the park or 
aren't I having a great time? You're doing it wrong. That leadership should feel like a burden. You know, it should keep you awake at night. It should make you feel like you're just not doing enough. And and that's why even more so, you know, we should seek out those people who don't seek leadership because those are probably the right people who have the right principles and the right values to carry the burden of leadership properly. My contact with Nabil is in many different guises. Uh, guise number one was walking into a meeting room at Ford Motor Company at Dagenham Engine Plant 13 or 14 years ago to find him as my new client. And I was appointed as his coach. When I left that room, I said to my business colleague, Louise, I just met someone special. His care for his community, his care for his own learning, uh, his deep need to... Joining me now is Andy Pellant, an international leadership specialist who is chairman of Murabi Consulting, founded by Nabil. Andy, thank you so much for sharing your time today. You were Nabil's associate and mentor as well as friend. What was your first impression of Nabil and did that ever change? I met Nabil in the middle of Ramadan, um, probably about 13 or 14 years ago when he was a relatively junior HR manager within the Ford Motor Company down at Dagenham Engine Plant. And the striking thing about him, from my point of view, was his intelligence, his thoughtfulness, and what continued to be part of his life all the way through was how much care he took of me in case I was uncomfortable that he wasn't eating or drinking. So <laughs> so that, that level of kind of making it okay for everyone else was very much part of that initial meeting. Um, and I think what was obvious about it was that he spent 50% of his time talking about Ford, but the rest talking about the community. And I don't think anybody who visited him or spoke to him during the period of his illness would have felt anything other than cared for by him. And we would all say, how are you doing? He said, I'm okay, how are you? <laughs> I see, I see. And you and Nabil had d- different religious beliefs, of yes. course. And, and you say that your two worlds both collided and had chemistry. So could you just give us a sense of that collision and that chemistry? Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm really honest, and, and I was proud to call him my Muslim brother, having no brothers of my own, he taught me a lot about world faith, not just about the Islamic faith. And it was clear to me that we shared values and beliefs, if not the same shape and form or the same system. Uh, and so it was clear in all that he did that he was inclusive of others, that it was faith-inspired but very faith-friendly and very faith-neutral. So not just him but his family and his colleagues and his friends would be very welcoming in and helping me understand more about being part of that faith system. But I think at the ultimate level what we agreed about was the need to be in service of something bigger than our own survival. So the notion of a higher purpose, the notion of being connected to something outside of ourselves was very much part of what bonded us together. Um, and so my focus went much more towards a humanistic model, I suspect you'd say, which is around the fact that we're all connected, that we, we have much more that connects us than separates us, and that our role really is to be kind in the world um, and to try and make the world a better place one conversation at a time, because not all of us will end up with a major platform to speak from. And I think that's what we've lost in losing him. 
I'm sure other people have said this to you. He wasn't comfortable about having his name on the front cover of this book. Did you know that? Yes, I heard that. Yeah. Uh, because to put his name along alongside the, the name of the prophet was difficult for him. Um, and yet he is honored by that and his honoring in doing that is immense. I hope we'll talk about ideas today. I hope really what I want to talk about is what are we going to do about the ethical leadership crisis we're facing today? And, and very quickly, I want to get to the point that was made by... Uh, You've also given lectures alongside Nabila Islamic courses about yes. prophetic leadership. Yes. Um, and as someone who isn't from a Muslim background, yeah. what key lessons do you yourself draw from, from Prophet Muhammad's leadership? That's a, that's a great question and one that I've been dreading. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, my immediate summary would be that there is everything that I believe in is present in the book that he wrote. The 11 the qualities. Wrote, yeah. yeah, so the, the, the 11 qualities summarize those things which I believe are the differential between those that lead from the heart and those that lead from the head. Uh, and certainly separate out those that lead from the pocket. So um, one of the things that he often talked about was kind of hard power and soft power. And I think hard power is usually characterized by coercion. If we don't do this, then something bad will happen. Whereas soft power is much more to do with, I believe that we can do this and in doing it, we will make something better in the world. And I want you to come on that journey with me. So I think what I learned from spending time with him in academic settings and in training sessions is that that voice that comes through from the prophet of compassion and of understanding and of standing back a little before judging is something which actually the world needs an awful lot more of. I haven't, I haven't asked the, the billion dollar question, which is what makes a leader? What defines a real leader, according to Nabil, in a nutshell, obviously, because this is a complex, complex area. I think I'll, I'll refer to a form of words that I've heard him use in almost every meeting we've ever been in, which is servant leadership. And to, to, to imagine servant leadership, you have to see a pyramid where in traditional leadership training, the leader is at the top of the pyramid. And everyone else is doing what they want that person to do. I think in the notion of servant leadership, you need to see the pyramid upside down. And what happens is the leader comes to work every day and says to his direct reports, how can I make your life easier today? What problem can I help you solve? What is it that's keeping you awake about your people's working conditions? And that those people then feel inspired to go and do the same thing to their direct reports. And I think he was on that journey of taking some of these principles from faith, making them mainstream, not just because of diversity, but because they actually are relevant and tell a story and they are right up to date. Someone said, Nabil didn't just write the book, he was the book. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's, there's, Absolutely, I would agree. And and I think who Nabil was and who he became through his illness was an access point for many books. And certainly what I'm hoping we can do with the book that exists today and that we're talking about is expand and extract and focus and build upon 
so that we can make that more available and that not because of him but through him the work can continue and 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 as you've probably experienced today i find it very hard to talk about him being in the past tense because you know i've got the book by my side and i carry it everywhere because i don't like the idea that i have to say he's not here anymore so yes he is the book Here to give us some deeper insight into the book and into Nabil himself, I'm honoured to be joined by Dr. Nasreen, Nabil's wife. Nasreen is a trainee psychiatrist and a mother of three children. Nasreen, thank you so much for having the courage and resilience to share your thoughts today. Thank you for having me. So how long has Nabil's book been in the making and were you there right from the start? I would say that... Nabil's journey into looking at ethical leadership started way before he met me. He ever met me. Um, in fact, it probably started, you know, as soon as he was born. Um, if you look at his family, his mum was quite a prominent community leader in London and Manchester, as was his dad. Um, and going even further back, his maternal grandmother was an MP in the Bangladesh Parliament and leader of an Islamic um, organisation. And his grandfather was internationally renowned as a Islamic leader and scholar. So he was kind of born into leadership. So he always felt that as he was growing up. And then he was involved in like community activism and community organising. I think the turning point came, I think we were married about seven years. And every year we used to go out on our anniversary when we remembered um, to go out for dinner and try and do like a wheel of life um, exercise. You know, where are we at? What are our aims for the coming year? But I remember that particular one. And we didn't do any of that because he's really excited. He said, look, I've, I've, I've just had this realisation. Lots of people have said to me, you're involved in community activism. You know, you, you know, you know about leadership. Why don't you put yourself forward for like the mayor or a councillor or a position of leadership? But he said, actually, the reach that would have would be really limited. What I really want to look at is ethical leadership because the crisis in the world today is corrupt leadership. And the reach that would have, um, you know, that, that would just be phenomenal. How did it feel for Nabil to finally hold his book in his hands after what was a lifetime journey, really? Nabil said he just felt he just felt this big sense of relief, like it's done. You know, I've all, you know all of these years um, I've been I've been trying to produce this. I've never had the time, and with the help of everyone at Caritas, you know, he, he kind of felt like when the babies were born. So I had to clarify, I said, are you sure it was as exciting <laughs> as when they were born or a bit? You know, he said, OK, maybe, maybe not as much. But, you know, you could just see the release. His fourth child. Palpable, his fourth <laughs> child, yeah. And, and the launch as well. Yes. The, so the launch was um, two days after he got the book. And it was between, so, you know, at one point we thought he wouldn't make it to the launch because he was in hospital until the Thursday, came home, and then the launch was on Saturday. So, um, and then actually we went back, we, you know, we, we went back to hospital on Sunday um, because he was having really bad, it, the tumour had spread to his brain by that time. He was having really bad headaches. So, yeah, he, just, he didn't rest. And very quickly, I want to get to the point that was made by uh, my dear sister, Dr. Zaza, 
about ibtila, tribulation. And when you face a tribulation and challenge, you know, it's been mentioned about my health challenges, which, which um, you know, I'll share one or two points about. How do you respond to that? What is the Islamic way to, to, to respond to that? What is the prophetic-inspired way to respond to that? And when you embrace it in the correct way, Allah opens up doors and, and gives you the opportunity to contribute a lot more. What do you think that Nabil most wanted out of this book? You know, what lessons do you think he would have liked readers to take away with them? I think that, um, so while, after Nabil became unwell, he wrote the epilogue of the book that wasn't in the original um, manuscript. And he describes it as a kind of stream of consciousness call to action. And that, I think that's where you'll find the lesson, the, the main lessons that he wanted from this book. He, he wanted to change the world, um, that, you know, since he was a young, a young boy, he wanted to change the world. And he very quickly realized that the way to do that would be to change leadership from corrupt to ethical leadership. And he, he wanted to see young people being taught ethical leadership at school, at university. He wanted spiritual intelligence to be part of the curriculum. He wanted, you know, when you, when you go for a job interview, for example, all the competency frameworks are based around IQ and now increasingly EQ. He wanted SQ, spiritual intelligence, in there as well. So th those, th that's, that's what he wanted. That was his vision. That's what he wanted. Um, and of course, he, the next book that he wanted to write was on the leadership qualities of Nelson Mandela. So yeah, he, he was a bit obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good obsession to it have. Is, it is, yeah. in, the, in the book, Nabil says, the land is unhappy and a hero is called for. Who do you think that hero is now? The hero, the heroes are young people who take the time to develop their spiritual intelligence and who have a good appreciation of Islam in terms of text and context and want to become ethical leaders. I think they're the real heroes. Thank you so much, Nasreen. It's been such a pleasure. Um, hearing from you and all of your insights as well and getting us closer to to knowing what Nabil felt and thought. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Ramona. It's an honour for me. I've been your host, Ramona Ali. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can explore more works at www.claritasbooks.com.